This is a CSIS podcast series conducted by the Technology and Public Policy Program, where experts are interviewed on key issues relating to cybersecurity. We're speaking with James Mulvenon, Vice President of Defense Group Incorporated's Intelligence Division and Director of DGI's Center for Intelligence Research and Analysis. Dr. Mulvenon, thank you for your time. Well, thank you. So where do you think cyber red lines should be drawn? Well, when you're talking about cyber red lines, one of the key things is we've been pretty sloppy about our language. Um, You often read about uh, the computer espionage intrusions described as attacks, Um, and that really mischaracterizes what's going on. The vast majority of the malicious behavior that we care about uh, online and in cyberspace is in fact hacking and espionage in order to gather information, steal business secrets, steal military information. There have actually been very few cyber attacks defined as the destruction or the disruption of systems in order to achieve some sort of a business goal or military goal. Um, And so when you talk about the red lines, it's important to distinguish between, on the one hand, the the espionage, and on the other hand, uh, the attack operations. Um, It's very difficult to draw red lines uh, on the espionage activity because, you know, everybody does it. Uh, And it's not going to be possible to legislate or to establish treaties to stop countries from spying on each other. it will be possible to do that in we, the United States hopes it will be possible to do that in the area particularly of state agencies stealing economic information that they then give to their domestic companies for their financial benefit. The United States, um, by statute, does not do that, but unfortunately we're the only country in the world that doesn't do that. <laughs> Uh, and so that puts us at a significant disadvantage, and also, not surprisingly, most of the countries in the world don't believe us when we tell them that we don't do this. And there was right. this recent kerfuffle um, in Brazil um, about possible espionage against Petrobras, um, and with the distinction that's getting lost is no one is saying that information was stolen about Petrobras and then given to ExxonMobil. It was simply strategic economic information, potentially, uh, that could be potentially forwarded to policymakers. Okay. Um, Where the real red line discussion is critical is on the attack side. In other words, what what do we allow under the so-called laws of armed conflict um, in the cyber arena? And um, actually even applying these laws of armed conflict, which make up the bulk of the UN Charter and it's things like proportionality Mm -hmm. and not attacking civilians and things like that. Um, It's been difficult to apply those to cyber because for many people, cyber is ephemeral and it doesn't really have the same kind of physical effect as a landmine or a bomb or or something along those lines. And, And it's only recently that the Chinese, for instance, have even agreed to discuss the laws of armed conflict as they relate to cyber. And so um, we're still at a very sort of philosophical uh, point on this. Um, But I think as more and more people get comfortable with the idea that cyber attack can have physical effects, and that more importantly, cyber attacks have imprecise cascade effects that can't be modeled very easily, um, there'll be more pressure to have red lines about, uh, about initiating attacks. And when I say unintended cascade effects, as an example would be, 
that you carry out a cyber attack against a power grid in order to disable the military people using that power grid, but then it also shuts off the power at a local civilian hospital and people in the intensive care unit at that hospital die. Um, and that's what's meant by the laws of armed conflict in terms of not targeting civilians' proportionality. Right. Um, and we're just such at an early stage of being able to even understand some of these issues and how cyber can have effects in the real world. But that's really where the focus should be is on that and not the vast majority of the activity we see now, which is really espionage. Okay, so do you think that it will take some sort of physical outcome to change the policy debate? Well, I, I would say that the debate is already changing because of the alleged Stuxnet, um, which for many people is the canonical example of how you can use software to have physical effects in the real world, in this case, disabling Iranian nuclear centrifuges. Um, and a lot of people think that Stuxnet was a Rubicon, that, that, you know, that we've sort of now crossed into an area where what had been posited by people like Richard Clark and other people as possible has now occurred. Um, and so in many ways, it's like Trinity. Um, it's, it's sort of the demonstration effect uh, of a new capability. And, and I think it's really focusing a lot of, of people's minds. Um, but we, haven't, we really haven't seen the kind of scale of attacks uh, that some of the real doomsayers and Cassandras have been predicting. Um, it almost suggests that there's some sort of a tacit cyber deterrence in place that we don't even understand because we know that the capabilities to carry out these widespread attacks are widely available. And we know because we use Microsoft products uh, that the vulnerabilities are widely dispersed. Um, so why have those two things not come together in the hands of someone with malintent? Um, and it is a question, and, it, and I think it has to do primarily with the uncertainty uh, on the part of the attackers as to what the response would be, um, in particular the idea that you know the Russians, for instance, years ago famously said they would respond to a strategic cyber attack with nuclear weapons. Well, you know, that's not terribly credible, uh, but uh, at the end of the day, um, you know, we're, we're sort of, as the Chinese would say, we're crossing the river by feeling the stones uh, in this area. Uh, and, and now is the right time to do the kind of hard thinking that the Bernie Brodies and the Schellings and the Kahns and the Ellsbergs and the Wolstetters did in the 50s and 60s that then defined the strategic environment in the 70s, 80s, and 90s for nuclear weapons. Okay. Um, so on kind of this China point, do you think the U.S. can effectively signal China? Um, and if so, under what kind of conditions? Well, we, we can signal China. I mean, but the problem with, with, again, with this activity is historically the attribution problems that we used to have, and I, and I really think in many ways we've licked the attribution problem, right. um, made it so that this was largely a covert or clandestine activity. Um, and so it was imminently, it was plausibly deniable. Um, and it's very difficult to do signaling in a plausibly deniable environment. Uh, people like Jervis and other people have shown mm -hmm. us that um, even in the best of circumstances, the most overt signals are sometimes either missed or uh, ignored or misinterpreted. Um, and so you can imagine in a subterranean environment like cyberspace, um, signaling becomes all the more difficult. Now, we have tried 
um, to signal the Chinese at multiple levels about our displeasure about the scale of their cyber intrusions into our commercial sector and military right. government sector. Um, and um, we encountered a lot of resistance. Um, resistance from people who may not really have been read in on the level of Chinese behavior, uh, resistance from people who were counting on the plausible deniability to give them large-scale freedom of maneuver in this area. Um, and then, of course, um, you know, recent disclosures um, have made it more difficult uh, to signal to China because China now believes that it has a body of evidence to show uh, that other countries, in fact, are conducting large-scale cyber espionage against China. Uh, and, um, and that has made them more resistant to the idea that, they, that this is something that they need to address. I've often said um, that China will not really become serious about dealing with um, the cyber uh, security problem until they have their own domestic cyber security problem to deal with. In the same way that people often say that China won't respect intellectual property rights until it has intellectual property that it wants to defend. Right. Uh, and so um, I think as China evolves um, and as its own criminal uh, hacking problems become more severe, um, uh, ironically, that will see that will that will push them to see that in fact the United States and China have many interests in common in this area. Um, particularly against third parties like a WikiLeaks or an Anonymous or other people that are clearly um, more anarchistic in focus and more anti-state in focus. Um, and so, uh, you know, that's why, that's why cyber signaling is so difficult is because you can do things at a very overt strategic level. You can have face-to-face -face discussions at a at a president-to-president -president level. Um, but there's always going to be um, subterranean things going on as well that either um, strengthen the signal, inadvertently undermine the signal, confuse the signal, uh, and so it's um, you know it's a it's a it's a very difficult area for us to be working in. Okay, um, there's obviously a lot at play, so I can understand why it's difficult. Um, China does a lot of economic espionage in the mm -hmm. U.S. And um, the private sector has surprisingly weak defenses. Do you think that the government can play a role in encouraging the private sector to adapt better defense systems for cybersecurity? Well, let me begin by saying that the biggest cliche in Washington is uh, public-private partnership and information <laughs> sharing. And uh, um, it's almost become a, a throwaway line like, you know, motherhood and apple pie and baseball. But uh, but it is it is true. And, and, and the, the, the ironic thing in the United States is that because of the nature of our political system and our economic system, we're uniquely disadvantaged compared to other countries in terms of doing this kind of public-private partnership. Many of the countries that we're dealing with um, have state-owned enterprises and state telecommunications monopolies, um, and they simply can't even fathom the kinds of problems we have dealing with privacy and dealing with property rights and dealing with intellectual property and dealing with shareholder value and all these other things that constrain companies from wanting to have underfettered sharing with the U.S. government. Now, there are some success stories, and I think we can learn some lessons from them, principally the defense industrial base pilot that the Pentagon has been running with uh, defense industrial companies. Now, admittedly, 
um, there's a limit to how useful that can be because um, the Defense Department has many of these companies um, uh, at their beck and call because of their security restrictions and the mm-hmm. certifications and things like that. But but here's what was interesting. A lot of people, when that pilot started, said, okay, the value of this is going to come from the fact that the government is giving us you know, um, declassified signatures of threats. But that turned out to not be the key thing at all. The key thing was that the government, basically through a wink and a nudge, said to these companies, we authorize you to go and collude with one another. And I use that phrase, you know, with, with some deliberate. And we're, we're going to allow you to collude together and share information with each other. And we're not going to intervene and claim that there's some sort of, um, you know, uh, problem here with antitrust or non-competitive behavior among you. Um, and then the government stood on the sidelines and just took notes as these companies that had very significant capabilities on the cybersecurity side began aggressively sharing information with each other and fusing information together about cyber threats. Now, that that pilot has been expanded to smaller companies like mine. Um, And I think a similar model, but would probably require significant congressional legislation, which is a problem. One would hope that we could do some things through executive order, would provide the same kind of cover to private sector companies in other industries to develop their own basically confederations with each other to share information and to engage in collective self-defense. And I think the next level of companies that we need to look at are the critical infrastructure companies, particularly of the electrical grid. Um, Because as we discovered here in Northern Virginia from the so-called derecho, um, when you lose electric power, you lose everything. You lose water treatment plants, you lose telecoms, you lose all kinds of stuff. Um, And so... You know, I would predict that next we're going to see the pressures on the critical infrastructure companies to get to engage in these kinds of sanctioned confederations, and then once that becomes more widespread, other you know banking, finance, high tech, information technology, other people. Um, but you know, at this point, you know, it's a, it's primarily a lawyer's problem uh, because many large companies simply don't want. Um, to take on the liability of sharing information about um, intrusions into their networks, which potentially could negatively affect shareholder value, without a clearer legal and political sort of superstructure over the top of it that tells them how they're being protected. Well, thank you very much for your time, Dr. Mulvenon. Hey, no, shake it off.